0: Traditionally, power was what was seen, what was shown, and what was manifested, and paradoxically found the principle of its force in the movement by which it deployed that force. Those on whom it was exercised could remain in the shade. They received light only from that portion of power that was conceded to them, or from the reflection of it that for a moment they carried. Disciplinary power, on the other hand, is exercised through its invisibility. At the same time, it imposes on those whom it subjects a principle of compulsory visibility, in discipline, it is the subjects who have to be seen.
1: Nat, we're back at Made You Think. We are back, and we are doing another afternoon episode, Yep, enjoying a little uh, wine as we record here, and I, I think it's necessary. Some Malbec. For yeah. this book, yeah. <laughs> Some fine Malbec. The book that we're discussing today is Discipline and Punish by Michel Foucault. And you know, this is a this is a special book for us. Yep. We broke a record. (laughs) We did. We did. We broke a record where every book and article up to this point, I think we could solidly say we would recommend people go out and read. This one, I think we would solidly say we do not recommend. Yeah, you
0: could just listen to the episode. (laughs) You could just
1: listen to the episode or read a Wikipedia summary or something. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily wish this book on other people. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, we shat on postmodernism so much in our past episodes that we decided it made sense to actually read one of the postmodernist works. Though I think I would say that
0: that was the intention behind this one, but it seemed like it was not actually that much about postmodernism in the same way that like, it didn't have much about, like, the gender differences or, like... Well, I, So, that. I think it does. Okay. He has another work that is just about that, right? Or... Well, it's
1: about sexuality. Okay. And I'm not 100% sure what he covers. Yeah, I haven't read it, so I don't know. Yeah. yeah I just know <laughs> but the title. I, well, I think, too, there's, like... So, in philosophy, right, there's a difference between the underlying philosophy and how that philosophy is being brought into modern discussions okay the so, thought process versus the manifestation basically. yeah exactly yeah. so i think this is definitely like a big foundation of postmodernism, even though you know some of the punishment stuff at least is not in like the modern discussionary gestalt right but it, you can still see how the ideas are very relevant to the conflicts that are well, like talked about on, well it's like focuses on power yeah exactly right? it's like, a big like, focus on power dynamics yeah. type stuff yep um, But in some ways, it's also a history. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's why the book is kind of interesting, is that he's not really arguing anything in the book. Yep. Most philosophy books that you read, the author has some point that they're making. They're saying, you know, like, this is what's right, or this is what the world is like, or this is science, or this is beautiful. Foucault's not really arguing for anything in particular. He's more saying, like, this is what is, and it's kind of his interpretation of history of punishment and discipline it's much less like this is how the world should work right it's more this is how he sees it already working
0: yeah and taking a step back. I think the reason we don't really recommend this book is not because it's not like an interesting topic. I think the topic's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's actually an interesting book. It's more I just don't like the way he wrote. Oh my gosh. It was like, if you want to be as verbose as possible, and I think very long sentences.
1: Exactly. If you challenged me to write like the least readable book possible, it would be hard pressed to do a better job than this. Yeah. It's, you know, you've got sentences that run for whole paragraphs that have, you know, 10 semicolons in them. And even the intro quote is like really long, but I think it was like one or two
0: sentences, maybe. Yeah, (laughs)
1: Yeah. it's just insane, this style of writing. And we'll we'll read more from the book as we're going, so you'll get more sense of it. But you have to just reread constantly and try to dissect each sentence. And I think you brought this up, or last week we were
0: talking about it as we were trying to work through the book. Yeah, it's a translation into English. But you said that doesn't
1: necessarily explain why it's like that. Yeah, it actually makes less sense because (laughs) it's translated from French. And compared to English, French is a very simple language, right? It has significantly fewer words. We might have five words for something in English, and in French, there's really just one, maybe two. And... There's not, you know, a significantly different grammatical structure or anything. So there's no reason that that would be an excuse for it being <laughs> so crazy, uh, verbose. And obviously, other things translated from French aren't like that. Right. So it's just something about the way he wrote. And to be fair, the postmodernists could are kind could of... It could also hard. be the translator, partially. No, no, um, no, no, no. It's definitely his the ori- style. The original. Oh, yeah. Mm. Because they're famous for this. Like, this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is a thing, right? That Foucault and Derrida, in particular, who are sort of the two main, you know, forefathers of postmodernism, at least depending on who you ask, they're just both famous for being painful to read and being incredibly verbose and all of this. And I don't know if it's like a French intellectual early 1900s thing or what, but I wonder if it's uh, a signaling of some sort too. Yeah, well, that, like that's intellectual signaling. I had some philosophy professor who mentioned that once that was like, you know, there's a temptation in philosophy to write in these really verbose. Like crazy ways and try to seem really complex and jargony. But well, you see that everywhere. Well, but the fact that many philosophers have become famous and widely read despite writing that way doesn't mean that it's like a good tactic, right? Yes, I totally it's agree. It's like Kant had amazing ideas, but he was a terrible writer. And it doesn't mean that you should be a terrible writer too. It's kind of like Steve Jobs did amazing things, but he was a horrible person, right?
0: So it doesn't mean you should act like
1: that. It doesn't mean you like should that, be a horrible yeah. person to like do well, amazing it's things. A it's a fallacy of like taking. Things that are, like, just correlation
0: and assuming that's the cause. Yeah. Like... Oh, like you're supposed to, I don't know, wake up and meditate or something like this famous person does that. So like you should do that, too. And you'll be like that famous person. But that's like not necessarily true. If that
1: were true. Listening to our episode on daily rituals, yeah. then you should spend all day hopped up on yeah. amphetamines <laughs> and alcohol. <laughs> that is the strongest correlation right. with artistic success throughout history, it <laughs> seems. So that's why we're drinking wine. Yeah, because we're just trying to pop, pop an Addy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> not this episode. no. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I think, I don't know, maybe some of it's that, where it's like, might be some kind of signaling of some sort. Yeah, it could be or, signaling. It might also be like, I don't know if this is a postmodernist thing or just a philosophy thing. There seems to be a, if it's a very easily understood sentence or idea
1: it's got to be like too simple to be powerful or something well there there is that element which is that if something is easily understood it's not good for teaching in university well it's also like you see the same thing with startups
0: who all try like not all okay that's a definitely broad stroke (laughs) but there's a lot of companies who are like we're bringing ai to this or like Uh, putting this on blockchain and it's like why why (laughs) and also the ai one i think is a better example because ai is like it's actually machine learning and they're calling it like artificial intelligence or they're saying like It's AI, but really it's like just a recommendation engine, which has been going on for a long time, right? It's nothing different. But by calling it artificial intelligence or saying we have a proprietary algorithm that does like blah, 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 it's like it makes it sound more complicated, which makes people think you're doing something really groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. So it could be some of that too, like a signaling or like obscuring the fact that it's a simple idea in a cloak of long sentences and big words.
1: Yeah, I think there is a big element to that. Like the reason that the Stoics usually aren't taught in colleges is that there's not much to teach. <laughs> right. You just you can read letters and it makes perfect sense. And you're like, oh, cool. I get it. Right. A professor is not going to earn a salary teaching a class on Stoicism. You almost because... don't need a class. Yeah, you, don't. you just you don't need don't to need read the all. book. You don't need <laughs> a class at all. But you would need like a whole university. University education to understand a few books like this. Yeah, right? we, if even understanding it, we kept pushing this episode back <laughs> <laughs> because I mean I think we had some sort of mutual acknowledgement <laughs> that we were slogging through the book you can't read more than, and maybe some people can out there and kudos to you if you are. I mean, I consider myself a pretty good reader, but this was just like, this was tough. Ugh, it was tough. But that said, there were some good ideas in here. some interesting ideas that I hadn't thought about. Before. Yeah. Now, now that we're done shitting on it for 10 minutes, <laughs> like I, I will say that there are interesting ideas in it. And the thing that we came into it too, was we wanted to come into it with the mindset of, okay, like, let's find, you know, what's interesting and stuff here. Yeah. Not like, let's read this and then shit on it. Right, it's we got that out of our system. Yeah, and to be fair The only thing that's bad here is the writing. Yes, the ideas are actually like quite good
0: Well, it's also a history that I had never really thought much about Yeah, we all just assume like prison is this thing and the current judicial system is its thing but like I never really thought much about the evolution of how it got there. Right. Never really gave that even a second thought. But and it's a very new really thing. There's a really interesting
1: history behind it. Yeah. And that's really how the book is written, is a four-part history of discipline and punishment. Uh, and that's basically a progression, too. So it's, you know, in the first book, he's starting in the beginning where it's basically pure punishment. And then it progresses to the fourth book, which is Modern Time, which is pure discipline. And less actual punishment. So, we'll get to kind of what all that means. But from that, and from how, what he's talking about with each of these, you can see how some of these themes of modern postmodernism Arise. creep out. Arise. Yep. So, and we will say we picked this book because there's really two main philosophers who get credited with postmodernism Foucault and Derrida. Foucault who you know wrote this book this one's kind of his like this said to be his best work there's also the history of sexuality which is supposed to be very good too do they live around the same time yes it's an early 1900s school of philosophy so they pretty much all lived around then in France not just in France but I think a lot of it came from France but he actually I mean he didn't he died in Berkeley he grew up in France and lived there and then he moved to the U.S. Uh, and was teaching at Berkeley for a while. Postmodernist was uh, haven. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, now it is. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he actually moved because he was like a really early kind of like advocate for gay rights. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so Foucault was gay and moved to kind of like the SF area to be part of that scene. And he actually ended up dying of HIV AIDS. Oh, yeah, never so, yeah, I never so that knew that. Yeah. So that was either. why he passed away fairly young. He could have still been alive today. Really? Yeah. Okay. So he was like yeah, a big I advocate know, for yeah. that. And I think the history of sexuality book is very like pro non heteronormative yeah. lifestyle, which is, I think, where some of the postmodernist like sexual and gender stuff comes in. Because I never understood the
0: connection. Yeah. I guess that makes a ton of sense now. So that
1: may Maybe be an you know, interesting also. one to check out sometime. Or try Derrida too. D- David yeah. was supposed to read the Derrida and I was going to read the Foucault and then he was just like no i'm not that's the good thing about the podcast is uh we have to finish the book right it
0: gives us some accountability especially
1: exactly. once we send out an email yeah saying that we're gonna do that
0: which one. we did for this one so if you're not on that email list you would have not known that we were covering this you can sign up for the email list made you think podcast.com.
1: it's a great email list it is 10 out of 10 would recommend four out of five dentists agree it's a great email list <laughs> what happened to this one i don't know he thought we were doing too much of the, uh. <laughs> <laughs> or he's uh or he's waiting for you know his third or fourth email. I forget what email we're on now. Like yeah, exactly. we're got three now. or <laughs> our, our weekly newsletter yeah. that goes out every three and a half weeks. We never <laughs> said it was weekly. sure right, I guess we never we're said also, that. It's also <laughs> definitely
0: not every three and a half weeks. It's more like six
1: weeks at this point. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll do more of them. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> we've been better lately. We've been better <laughs> got lately. two this year, I think. Which is we I think we had one in all of 2017, which
1: was like four months that we were doing yeah. podcasts. podcast. So we got two <laughs> three in three months. Days. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's improvement. It's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Positive growth vector. We'll get to monthly eventually. Yeah, Yeah. It's not like Uh, they're hard, but they're... (laughs) (laughs) But... That's where all the free money is, right? Exactly. It's in the email list. Anything else we should say intro-wise before we jump in here? Um, It's also... This one's going to be a weird one in discussion because there's no not much of a linear progression to it i mean there is, there is. there's like a historical progression yeah I, I mean like an ideological progression oh uh, yeah right so as we don't want to just say well this happened then this happened and then this happened so we got a good idea we got to outline here
0: so. yeah i mean i would be curious to do a follow-up episode on this that's more purely about post mm-hmm. where i like david's idea of like um steel manning the argument oh yeah right. Yeah, of yeah. like because i'd be very curious about like the best case argument. So, like, basically, reading a book that is an overview of it and why it's a, you know, like a great philosophical system
1: or something, like a very pro postmodernism. We book. should mention, too, that when we're talking about David, we're referencing David Perell, who yeah. hosts the North Star podcast. <laughs> yes. So, with some incredible guests. He's got some amazing that, guests. I was he said, looking at like, his list. <laughs> yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. Tyler Cohen. He's got some really cool guys on there. Yeah. So. so, check out his podcast. Check out his podcast. Uh, and give him shit for not reading Derrida. Yeah. You can message him on Twitter. Or you can leave a <laughs> review on his podcast. <laughs> no,
0: don't. No. Be nice. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious to do that and like just see that philosophy from like a very pro perspective. Because yeah. I think a lot of the things we've been reading are like refuting that philosophy and so we're obviously biased partially because of that right partially i think just the way we naturally <laughs>
1: lean but yeah i'd be curious to like see what that pro argument is like like the best case argument There could be a good series of episodes where like not just postmodernism, but going into other schools of philosophy yeah. too, and just researching the school and then talking about it as an episode yep. and kind of like arguing in favor you know challenges to it and stuff it could be interesting let, yeah. let us know on twitter if you'd like us to try something like that as a new episode format, it could be fun.
0: Yeah, or like a like a sporadical, like maybe once a month we do one of those. And yeah, I- in defense of postmodernism
1: and in defense of cool. stoicism, that'd be an easy one. Yeah, that'd be- <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right, all right, let's dive in. So, as we mentioned, the book basically starts off with the history of punishment, and he opens the book with this account of a particularly brutal. Public execution that happened in Paris in I want to say the 1800s
0: started off with some fireworks. Yeah Put it That way. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: the thing is the book is extremely like exciting right off the bat and graphic He's telling this graphic tale of this just horrible public execution And if you listen to the most recent, at least the time of recording, Hardcore History podcast. Right. I haven't listened to that yet. He opens the podcast with the exact same story. So I listened to it the same time I was reading this. I was like, oh, that's kind of a funny crossover. Yeah. So. Huh. But it's famous because it was one of the last public executions in France. And it was just particularly violent. I think the guy tried to kill the king or it was something bad it was something but yeah it was something bad but more importantly the execution was like incredibly graphic incredibly graphic uh it was like an all-day event people traveled to paris to see this execution happen and the guy was like having chunks of his body ripped off with pliers so was Uh, the 1750s 1750s okay yeah
0: so it was you're close enough but yeah so 1750s yeah he had his Uh, I'm just going to read from where it starts getting graphic. The flesh will be torn from his breasts, arms, thighs, and calves with red-hot pincers, his right hand holding the knife with which he committed the said parasite burnt with sulfur, and on those places where the flesh will be torn away, poured molten lead, boiling oil, burning resin, wax, and sulfur melted together, and then his body, drawn and quartered by four horses, and his limbs and body consumed by fire, reduced to ashes, and his ashes thrown to the winds.
1: Damn. Yeah. (laughs) That is brutal and graphic. And I think what makes it worse is that pretty much every part of it got botched. Yeah. So they the I don't know what you call them. It's not like a hangman. Oh like, they didn't know how to like rip the skin properly. And then also when the horses were quartering, it said they had to use
0: instead of four, they had to use six because the horses were like less trained horses than usual. Yeah, they didn't know how to do the run for the quartering. And then it said even they did not suffice, so they were forced in order to cut off the wretch's thighs to sever and hack at the joints. Yeah, because it wasn't coming apart. Ugh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, I think when they were quartered, they were alive still. Right. Oh yeah. You ripped apart while still alive. So how much of this do you think was like almost a warning
1: signal to other people? Not do you think most of that is like it was tied to that? That's kind of what he is saying in this section. Yeah. Is that punishment was, you know, historically punishment ordered by the monarch. Was yeah, it was a expression of sovereignty. So I'll read this from the book. In monarchical law, punishment is a ceremonial of sovereignty. It uses the ritual marks of the vengeance that it applies to the body of the condemned man, and it deploys before the eyes of the spectators an effect of terror as intense as it is discontinuous, irregular, and always above its own laws—the physical presence of the sovereign and of his power. And also, I, I again just have to apologize if anything that we're reading from the book doesn't make sense. You may have to like go read my notes along with the episode or something because even as i'm saying that out loud i feel like i have to reread it right same yeah (laughs) basically what he's saying in that section is that punishment is a way of the sovereignty speaking to the masses to say this is what happens when you disobey me right when you break your compact with me to show the boundaries basically exactly yeah when you try to exceed the boundaries this is This is this is what happens
0: you get ripped apart in the town square Yeah, so it was almost like less about the person who, I mean, it is about the person who exceeded those things, but it's also about showing everybody else that this is what happens when you
1: try to like disobey my divine authority. Right. And we come back to this later, but part of what Foucault is arguing is that in the transition to prison, you move from this punishment focus where the individual who committed the crime serves as an example to the broader society. You move from that to Rehabilitation of the individual. Yeah. Right. So it's no longer that we're making an example of you and the sovereign's kind of like speaking through your body. It's you need to be disciplined back into line with the society. Right. So it's changing you versus changing other people. And that's kind of one of the big shifts that happens. Yeah. And I think and
0: this is partially uh, being influenced by another book that we're reading, but there's also this thread of humanism. I don't know if he explicitly called it out, but it's he's definitely talking about it where the shift came to where um, this rehabilitation idea is somewhat baked into the concept of each person having a soul that can be redeemed. And like there's a inherent value in each human being, whereas like before that didn't really seem to be a thing. And now it's kind of like not now, but there was a progression to it where it's like less about punishment and more about like how can we save this person mm. in some ways right it's like even the i forget there was uh during the transition there was a section where he was talking about they were like trying to almost like make the person pay so he pays less in hell right there was like oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah, so it was like trying to like almost make god judge the person less harshly in the afterlife it's already been judged
1: in already the real world yeah, yeah so you'll
0: be softer on them and they've paid for some of their sins already so it's like i don't know there was like a shift at some point to it's less about basically showing divine punishment and more about like, well, this is a person with a soul that is kind of a divine in itself. Yeah. Where it seemed like in ancient times, that wasn't really a concept. There wasn't the same regard
1: for the individual. Right.
0: Which that seems to be a major shift in humanity in general. Like the last two, three hundred years, that's a big thing. Yeah. But before that, it didn't really seem to be that
1: big of an idea. I always have a hard time with that though, because that could just be like it could a, just be when it's written or yeah, it just like, could be a function of you know telling history. Yeah, right? that's true it's like too. You you hear these stories about oh these like have you been reading Spartan, the book I'm talking about? Are we talking about this? Yeah, uh, not yet. Okay, well that's it's like a big thread in the whole book. Oh, uh, okay. About that, yeah. But what I was gonna say is like you read these stories of like oh these fearless Spartan warriors who would like you know run to the death to like fight to protect their city, and it's like okay, that's a great story, right? but for the individual, how different is one of those individuals from like a modern person in the army, right? I bet not that. But there's also
0: that some of it's like the narratives that we tell each other, right? So it's kind of like, I don't know, we've grown up in this very individualistic society. I think I was talking about this a little bit on the last one. I think we talked about it with the Hiroshima episode too. Yeah. Even the the gun control one about like Japan versus here. It's like we've definitely grown up in an individualistic mindset in society. So we think very individualistically like you are you, I'm me, but like Maybe for people who were, maybe the Spartans, right? Maybe they were very societal, like community-oriented, essentially. More more communal. Yeah, so it's more like you're a cell within a unit as opposed to an individual all on your own. I believe that. Maybe, I don't know.
1: There's We can't rewind history and actually figure out the right answer, but... Yeah, but we can see certain behaviors that suggest that, or like kamikaze pilots in World War II. Right. It's a distinctly kind of Japanese thing. Yeah, or people even calling on the emperor to commit suicide is like an interesting thing.
0: Like the equivalent would be if like, I don't know, when the like Iraq war clearly didn't go that well, if people were calling on like Bush to commit suicide. like nobody, exactly. I don't think anybody <laughs> even called for that, right? It was like, people might have been like, oh, he should be impeached or whatever. Well, but there was certainly like, wasn't like,
1: any serious national call for right. it, right? Yep. It sounded like there was some of that in Japan. Right. And I think I would argue that even the emperor himself
0: in Japan felt guilty. He probably considered it, yeah. seriously. Yeah. So it's I don't know, it's like a different mindset. And I think uh, Harari is very good at Talking about this even in Sapiens, about how so much of
1: our worldview is shaped by narrative, right. which is
0: a very postmodernist yes. way of thinking, actually. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I, I was actually thinking about that as um, I'm rereading Sapiens, as I was like, oh, there's actually a lot of those elements. A lot of those threads kind of weaving in here, which makes sense because postmodernism is such a dominant philosophy in modern social science schools, right? Right. In modern, like, liberal arts. Well, I think what's anything. tough about it is that it it does have this element of truth. Yeah. Like, our worldview is
0: shaped by the narrative that we grew up around.
1: Yeah, narrative we grew up around and that there is really no absolute reality or absolute truth. Right. right?
0: Or maybe there is, but it's beyond us.
1: Beyond It's like yeah. math, right? Yeah. <laughs> that we're all seeing, like, one side of it, essentially. Exactly.
0: But... Your side might be different than my side, which is different than the next person's side. But there might be something
1: absolute, but it's like sort of beyond our ability to see. Right. We can't comprehend it, or at least we can't fully comprehend it. Interesting. So in the intro, it does make you think. (laughs) So in the intro, he kind of goes through this progression on a high level. And he starts to get more into some of the elements of discipline, too. So one of the things he focuses on or mentions pretty early is that there's this element of enclosure Mm. in discipline. Uh, And he says, reading from the book, discipline sometimes requires enclosure. The specification of a place heterogeneous to all others and closed in upon itself it is the protected place of disciplinary monotony. There was the great confinement of vagabonds and paupers. There were other more discreet, but insidious and effective ones. There were the colleges or secondary schools. The monastic model was gradually imposed. Boarding appeared as the most perfect, if not the most frequent, educational regime. So he's pointing out here that the, while punishment was confined to people who did something wrong, discipline became a sort of way of life where all elements of society started to be built around these disciplinary structures, particularly in confinement. So it's not just the prisons and the boarding houses or the crazy houses. It's also, you know, how we School. organize our schools, our factories, our even our time in some ways, right? Yeah. Like putting our military, boundaries. our personal time, right? Like we even discipline ourselves to try to control for time and put everything in its place. Like it became this mentality along with the shift and punishment.
0: Yeah. And it was almost like different use cases almost Mm -hmm. because like punishment was more crimes against the, well, it started as crimes against the sovereign and then it shifted to like crimes against the people. Right. So it was, but it was like still a crime against somebody like murder or theft or something like that. Whereas this is
1: more like, vagabonds and like like basically homeless people well but it's also a thing where you know before everybody was pretty much just like you know whatever doing their own thing and then somebody broke you know the sovereign law and then they had to be punished One of his points of discipline is that everybody has a place now, right? It's almost bringing up borders for yourself, like not borders for yourself, but for your time, regardless of if you did anything wrong. Well, your time and your place in society. Right, right. Everyone is expected to behave and act in a certain way. And what he's saying, too, is like an individual has a place, but a place also has an individual. And you can kind of pull any individual out of the system and put a new one in and the system still operates fine yeah right it's like everybody is integrated but also very like interchangeable and dispensable expendable there we go third time's charm
0: (laughs) (laughs) so that was one point of contention i had is that like i don't think that was like a new thing necessarily i mean it might have been on a mass scale Mm. but there were definitely disciplined people before this whole movement yeah, well,
1: I, I don't think he's just talking about, like... This is more the societal view. Yeah, it's more the societal view. Yeah, not the individual view. Because here, what he says a little bit later is, uh, in the 18th century, rank begins to define the great form of distribution of individuals in the educational order. Yep. Rows or ranks of pupils in the class, corridors, courtyards rank attributed to each people at the end of each task and each examination the rank he obtains from week to week month to month year to year an alignment of age groups one after the other a succession of subjects taught and questions treated according to an order of increasing difficulty so it's like this strict imposition of hierarchy hierarchy yeah Yeah. kind of like in all parts of life Whereas before, maybe, you know, you're just punished if you broke the law. Now you can be punished for stepping outside your position in this, like, instructed yeah. hierarchy. So create classes, basically. Create classes, yeah. yeah. Create a caste system. And I think what he is, he's not explicitly arguing, but what he's suggesting is that it's all just these kind of artificial constructs that have just been imposed upon us as a way to discipline us. Right but we also kind of go along with it and allow it to happen. So
0: I think that's where one of the postmodernist ideologies comes through here, which is that like the hierarchy or the patriarchy, right, is like an artificial construct. Manifestation uh, of power. Right, as opposed to a, I would say other people might argue, an emergent property of systems.
1: Yeah, an emergent result of inequality inequality yeah right. unless you have a perfectly egalitarian system a hierarchy has not to emerge not just even emerge. system egalitarian skills and genetics basically too well no but i just mean like in any it doesn't even have to be a human system right that's right? true too yeah like any yeah. system where all the actors are not perfectly equal some sort yeah. of hierarchy will naturally emerge yeah. yeah even if you have unequal computer processor speeds I mean, like, if you have unequal sized balls rolling down a hill right, right. <laughs> like one of them is going to get to the bottom of the hill first yeah. So the only way that you kind of totally remove any hierarchy is perfect egalitarian. Yeah. Unless what he's saying is what he could be saying here, too, is that there can be a natural hierarchy, but it doesn't need to be an enforced. Yeah. Hierarchy. This is like a codified. This is like yeah. a codified hierarchy. This is the school is saying, you know, you are this rank and you are this rank and you are this. rank. So it's not emergent. It's exactly. Like, it's almost this is top down. It's more top down or it's at least imposed, uh, imposed. sticky. Yeah, that might be a good way to put it. Ah, uh, yeah. Where the patterns emerge. Out. It'd be harder to move out of your... Exactly, but yeah. it's hard to move out.
0: That's actually a really good way of putting it. And then because it can also become... Um, well, I guess what it emerged into is classes, which then became almost like something you were born into. Right. At which point then it's not really at all an emergent hierarchy. It's totally a imposed hierarchy at that point.
1: Yeah. Right. Or it's at least much yeah. more imposed
0: than an old, more right. fluid structure. Yeah. It's not... What, there's a term for this in systems. Like... When you can shift, like, so basically you and I, let's say were terrible performers and we were at the bottom of the hierarchy, but we could have kids who are not like that. Right. But in an imposed hierarchy where it's sort of like based on where your family's position is in society our kids, even if they're much more skilled than we are, would be occupying the same place as we have. Right, And the opposite is true, too. If you were, let's say we were at the top of the hierarchy and our kids were some goons and, like, <laughs> horrible at everything. Or fall out of it. it, yeah. But they wouldn't fall out of it because it's not based on skill anymore. It's sort of, in, I don't know, it's not in, I mean, it is isn't it's not imposed. rigid. Sticky is probably
1: the best term. Yeah, sticky or rigid or inflexible. Yeah. Well, it's like what Taleb was saying in Skin in the Game, right? Yeah. It's not how close together the wealth levels are of the society that measures its equality. It's how easily you can move in and out yes. of the wealth yeah. classes. Yeah. So it's like if you move into the top and then it's sticky, it doesn't matter what you do. There's probably something wrong. It's very with that. low equality. But that's you know, that's what it's like in Italy and France and these places that you think of as being those were some really cool stats that he Yeah. Showed, which I never knew. Like in Florence.
0: How he was talking about how it's like the same top five, same families few families since, since like the 1600, exactly like 500 years.
1: It's <laughs> wild. It's a long time. It's longer than the U.S. has been around, like by yeah. by double. Oh yeah, basically. But nobody who was the richest in the U.S. when it was founded is yeah, still the richest. Yeah. yeah, not even anyone. I mean, even yeah, in our lifetimes, easy. it'll change. We're what right? there's 80 percent turnover in the last 20 or 50 years, I think.
0: Isn't there a stat that's like I don't know the exact number, but it's well above 50 percent of people will have at least one year of being in the top five percent of incomes. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Just pretty incredible when I heard that step. But it, in that sense, I wonder what the ranks are between countries. Like, are is like Hong Kong a bigger, like, have more shift than the U.S. Or
1: I would bet it doesn't.
0: It doesn't, right? Hong Kong, no. yeah. Well, Hong Kong or other like super free market uh, places is what I'm wondering. Like Singapore or like yeah, places that are like even because the U.S. We always call it like a mixed economy because it is, or it's not like true free market. But there's some places which are very
1: much free market type yeah. places although it's hard to find many places That's more true. free market than the u.s yeah it's really just like singapore hong kong but it's like of, city states yeah the only <laughs> places that can afford to be more free market are really the ones who have their military given to them for free by another country yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> we didn't have to worry about that and uh yeah. we could have just like a, a what was his name but I mean, if we could basically have like a more benevolent dictator <laughs> as opposed to all of the congressional nonsense, yeah. then maybe it would work a little better. But
0: hey, maybe going back to sovereign individual, maybe we'll be returning to the idea of city states.
1: I still love that idea. I why. hope we do.
0: I know. It'd be awesome. Yeah. Transition
1: might not be fun, but no, that part
0: post-transition, will post-transition will be transition cool. would be great. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. The book. Good tangent. Good tangent.
1: <laughs> And as he's talking about the educational order, right, so creating these ranks and hierarchies and stuff, he starts to bring in the timetable, right, and time becoming a system for discipline, right? People caring about time way more because, reading from the book, the principle that underlay the timetable in its traditional form was essentially negative. It was the principle of non-idleness. It was forbidden to waste time, which was counted by God and paid for by men. The timetable was to eliminate the danger of wasting it a moral offense and economic dishonesty. Discipline, on the other hand, arranges a positive economy. It poses the principle of a theoretically ever-growing use of time, exhaustion rather than use. It is a question of extracting from time ever more available moments and from each moment ever more useful forces. This almost reminds me of like the inverse of in praise of idleness. So it's like this principle, right?
0: Is like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. is like that any idle time is a is like a sin. It's always basically.
1: Yeah. And actually, what I think is interesting here is he's saying that timetable is kind of a punishment system, right? Where if you weren't adhering to where you should be and when, then you were punished. Yep. Whereas discipline allows you to get more and more out of that amount of time because it's, you know, being perfectly organized into rows and ranks and hierarchies and factory structure and all of that. And so through discipline, you kind of multiply your potential output
0: it's almost like positive
1: reinforcement versus negative reinforcement
0: yeah kind of because negative is like oh you're punished if you're not in this place positive is like you'll get more out of your time if you do these things like you'll get rewarded basically yeah so it's almost like reward instead of punishment right i like the little um there was a little tangent in the maybe not even a tangent but it was, it was part of it about the apprentice system yeah, yeah. that was pretty cool to see That's what i was about to mention too go for yeah. it yeah i guess i could read that part from the book After six years apprenticeship, four years of service, and a qualifying examination, they were given the right to set up and run a shop in any town of the kingdom. We find here the characteristics of guild apprenticeship, the relation of dependence on the master that is both individual and total, the statutory duration of the training, which is concluded by a qualifying examination, but which is not broken down according to a precise program. It sounds like he's pretty
1: pro-apprenticeship. Yeah, it's a very different system. Yeah. And he mentions it later, I don't remember exactly where, but he talks about how that was sort of how school worked for a while was the students would just kinda like hang out and do whatever they wanted in a room. And then if they had questions, they went and asked the master. Right. And then eventually that morphed into sitting in perfect rows and aisles, right? A much more disciplinary structure. And we'll get to the Panopticon and all of that, but the teacher being able to survey everyone at once. Mm, yeah. Right. Whereas in the old system, apprenticeship style, it was like you did your thing and you just you know, got feedback and stuff as necessary. Well, there was a great
0: conversation. I, I had a lunch yesterday with a, a few people and one person is, works at like a VC firm mm-hmm. and he was talking about how he got his start and he he went to CMU actually, but he's a little younger than us. So he's working at a VC firm pretty early in his career. He's pretty young. What's his name? David Silverian. Oh, okay. I don't think you knew him, but I brought you up okay. and he was like, the name sounds familiar, but I, I don't think I'm friends with him. <laughs> But the thing that he was talking about that was pretty cool is like he just in his sophomore year, he kind of knew he wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. He just started emailing firms and offering to work for free and scout Pittsburgh companies for him. Yeah. So he was like, oh, you're a New York VC or you're a San Francisco VC. I know you're not coming to Pittsburgh to scout companies. So like, what if I just kept a tab on these companies for you? Totally for free. And then he would get to like, obviously most of them didn't respond. Right. then a couple of people did. And it was like a way to get a foot in the door. And then he just did that all through college was like doing stuff for free for different firms. And at the end, he had like four different firms who wanted him to work for them, even though typically you need an MBA and you need like either founder experience or some experience on something, but like they got to know him and now he had this sort of apprenticeship and every summer he'd go work for, you know, one of those firms. And Sweet. He had a great network from that, but it just reminded me of this yeah. where it's like the apprentice system again. It's like you work for free. So his advice, he was saying like, You know, he tells this to anybody who's like trying to break into it is like, you don't need an MBA. You just need to like go work, get the experience. Right. Because you don't know anything and MBA is not going to help you with that. (laughs) To Do the MBA and you'll actually know less. Well, especially if your goal, like, so he was saying your goal as he was saying every single day, right? He talks to different founders and he's like scouting different things. He's like, you need to have a thousand conversations with founders before you have any sense of like what you're doing. Mm. Probably at least a thousand. Right. So he was like, Like if you haven't had those thousand, like you're not going to be a VC. Right. (laughs) Like So he's like, just get started on getting those thousand as soon as possible. And no one's going to hire you until you've had, you know, you have at least something that you can show for it. I mean, you have to have been a successful founder, or but his model was pretty interesting. He's like, I've been interested in the investing side. I, I don't really have the founder interest as much. But like there was no good way for me to like break into the system besides working for free. That's a good advice for people, right? It's It's like a great way to do it. The apprentice model still works. It's just not codified in the same way. Like it's not a common thing but I think it's a good way to learn. Well, it's like Charlie
1: Hohen's yep. recession-proof graduate thing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking as he was talking. It's a great model. You yep. just start emailing people and saying, hey, you know, I would love to do what you you're doing someday. Like, well,
0: you gotta offer something.
1: Yeah, I can do this for you. I right. like, do it for free and then we can well, revisit.
0: Like David, well, like David turned the fact that he was in Pittsburgh in from a bug to a feature. Right? Yeah. It's like, it could be a bug because there's not too many VCs in Pittsburgh, but that's a feature because there's not too many VCs in Pittsburgh. Exactly. Right, so it's <laughs> like, but there are some companies there, so it's like, like, okay, I'm going to scout these out. I'm going to talk to all of them, send you like a little write up on each one. And by the way, you don't have to pay me. Right. Like who's going to say no to that? If your job is to scout companies. Right. It's a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like stuff like that. You got to provide something. Like if you got a cold email of somebody just being like, Hey, I want an apprentice for you. You probably would be like, okay, I don't know. It's not my job to figure out what you could bring value for or whatever. Right. But if somebody emailed you and was like, Hey Nat, I will like go out and find like five clients for you in the next month you'd be like okay sure go for it yeah do
1: it yeah (laughs) see if you can do it yeah (laughs) i mean andres yeah who makes this show amazing like that was a cold email he said he'd do the first episode for free and if i liked it we go from there and shout out to andres shout out to andres (laughs) uh andres if you've bought the domain please put that in the description i don't know if you actually we we were talking (laughs) about about it yeah yeah yeah. so it uh shout out to andres our amazing podcast Put her together, or he's, yeah. mu- he's much more than an editor. So yeah, well, uh, the show would not be what it is. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. So if anybody else is doing podcasts, you should hit up Andres to help you out. Yeah. So his his link will be in the bio. Yeah.
0: But th- but he's a good example of exactly. Him, right? it's yeah. like
1: Yeah. He. I mean, did he te- self? He's probably taught himself. I think he self taught. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I I was either his first client or one of his first, and then since then he's been able to like quit his full time job and just wow. do this full time, which is awesome. Yeah. But so. it's funny how common that kind
0: of story is oh, too. It's common. like.
1: It's like yeah, I
0: mean, I feel like if, unless somebody has tried working for free, mm-hmm. it's like magic. It's like wow, how did they get that kind of a job? But it's kind of seems similar <laughs> for most people
1: yeah. like, to get in. I mean, I'm sure you did something. That's what I did in college on. when I started yeah. getting into marketing. Yeah, I yep. was reaching out to people offering to do marketing stuff for free. Adil did that for design. Yeah, I know that he did for it for sure. design yep. stuff. I heard his Natchat interview.
0: Yeah, exactly. You yeah. talked about it on the Snapchat yeah. interview. <laughs> no, but it's surprising how common it is.
1: And the thing you'll find too is that a lot of people will take you up on the offer and pay you. Because I've had people reach out to me offering that. And I'm always like, like, look, we can do a test run, but you know, I don't want somebody to work for free. Mostly because I don't think that like most people working for free just it won't work. There's no skin in the game. There's no skin in the game. Exactly. So there needs to be like some incentive, but it's at least a good way to get their attention, being willing to work. Well, the right personality
0: type for that you want to work with is going to be an overachiever anyway. Mm-hmm. So if they think, you know, okay, this guy's paying me like a hundred dollars for the day or something, I don't know, whatever it is, they're going to want to exceed that value. Yeah, exactly. So they're going to work extra hard if they're getting paid. If they're getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> Very Machiavellian of you.
1: No, I'm no. just kidding. Supportive. I'm just Supportive. Jeez, Neil. Just kidding. That's someone's a cynical view. No one's gonna want to gonna intern at Growth Machine now.
0: <laughs> no, that's a, it's a great company. <laughs> I'm in the
1: office right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you get to drink wine at three o'clock. It's a and good, there's a dog. It's a good
0: gig. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, we've had some good tangents. so Good far. tangents. So, and this actually gets to what I was talking about with the school organization, where he's talking about the old structure for education, how you know you'd go off and do your thing, and then you talk to the master. And Foucault says, a whole problematic then develops—he can't to say a whole problem develops—a <laughs> whole problematic then develops that of an architecture that is no longer built simply to be seen as with the ostentation of palaces or to observe the external space— such as the geometry of fortresses, but to permit an internal, articulated, and detailed control, to render visible those who are inside it, in more general terms, an architecture that would operate to transform individuals, to act on those at shelters, to provide a hold on their conduct, to carry the effects of power right to them, to make it possible to know them, to alter them. Stones can make people docile and knowable. Hold on, that is two sentences. That is two sentences. (laughs) (laughs) Everything before stones could make people docile and knowable is one sentence. You're getting winded there. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I was trying to do it in one breath. It's like I need like M&M's lungs, right? (laughs) Basically, what he's saying is that buildings then become designed in order to maintain visible control over the people in them with you. So you know what's wild is that this is very
0: much like seeing like a state, Mm. uh, the book, which is that's kind of the flip side of this. So that is like talking about how, well, the big example they use is cities. Like cities are redesigned or, yeah, basically redesigned. Like So cities that have a historical layout that has emerged organically are very much unknowable from the top, right? Because the instructions to like get to your house, for example, might be like turn left and walk like 20 paces from the water fountain or something, right? There's no address. So that's why cities from a top-down approach will be like, oh, we should have a grid or we should have like this area should be zoned for this and this area should be zoned for that. And that's a great from a top-down perspective. So as he's saying, like, it makes it knowable what's going on inside the city. Like, oh, that's a commercial zone or that's a residential zone. Yeah. But that's not necessarily how people would have designed it from the bottom up, right? Because like, not necessarily the most useful approach. Right. Like the useful approach might be like, okay, it makes sense to have a apartment building here and this commercial area here, like it would organically emerge. Yeah. Right, because if like someone opened up a shop in an area that doesn't really need a shop, it'd probably just go out of business, right? So it's not zoned in any way, it's just sort of free for all, right? Which like, okay, there's negative arguments for that too. But the biggest problem quote problem with that is that you can't know what's going on right it's, it's harder goes. to have control over the city and then it becomes a big problem for taxation or like even just like let's say you need an ambulance to go
1: somewhere if there's no address like how do you know where the person is well that's the crazy thing if you visit these old European cities yep or Asia too and Asia too yep. yeah, yeah yeah but like uh particularly i noticed this in prague i was just gonna say prague yeah because it's one of the few european cities that hasn't been leveled exactly (laughs) you know completely survived the world wars somehow they brag about it yeah it's like one of the first things you hear they're like we surrendered yeah it was smart (laughs) (laughs) it was smart preserved (laughs) our architecture (laughs) we're not
0: like those idiots
1: in warsaw (laughs) that's what they'll say because i went
0: from warsaw to prague so in warsaw they're so proud of the fact that they didn't really surrender and that even when they were uh conquered they still fought back and they were like, all oh, the buildings here are new because Hitler had a vengeance against Poland. And they're very proud of that fact. Yeah. Then I went straight from there to Prague and they brag about the opposite fact. I'm yep. like, yeah, we surrendered. So we spared ourselves all the damage. And I'm like, <laughs>
1: okay, interesting. But you feel it when you walk around. Yeah, it's an old city. It's a very old city. It's all these like weird roads. Organically so laid out. Impossible to navigate. So there's all those like almost tunnel type of things. Not tunnel, yeah. but like. Well, they've got like the covered dirt, archways guess, between buildings, yep. right? That yeah. you can walk under. And just really twisty-turny. No way to get a car down, most of it. Cobblestones all over the place. You pretty much have to walk or be on a scooter. Yep. And, I mean, it's really cool. and It's very fun it's to great. see. It's great. It's just, it's so different from, I mean, we live in Manhattan. Right. Right? It's a pure grid. Right. Or it has very much a top-down city. DC is, I would say, more organic than New York. It's but- weird, though, because DC is totally top down of course. but it's designed to be yeah. more organic <laughs> yeah, feeling which is right? interesting which is also partially uh, apparently it was to prevent invasions huh so they designed oh, it to be deliberately obscure and kind of like obtuse to navigate to make it harder to invade smart so there's no straight line from outside of dc to the capital or the white house or anything so you'd have to go in these you'd like have twisty, to go in these kind of like twisty routes yeah clever it's very smart I thought of that. Yeah, <laughs> but the whole thing is just top down yeah all designed at least in the core original dc area you get further north and east right outside of you know right on the potomac and then it like I think, gets more away from the original plans, but that was the original plan. That's one thing you notice in Asia, though, like in India especially,
0: like Mm. it's all bottom up in cities, which is why like e-commerce is so hard in that country because it's like deliveries are really hard to do. Makes sense. A lot of people don't have address. Like it's not really like a real address that people have. Like I think they might have an address, but it's not like a GPS will be able to get you It's not like on
1: the street. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of like... there's a lot of issues. So it does bring up issues when it's not top down, but the cities are just like laid out in a totally different way that's not comprehensible unless you live there. If you live there, you're like, oh, I know exactly where that is, but you might not be able to describe exactly. Like you might just be like, oh, like you turn left after a while and then you turn, but like you know. Yeah. But you wouldn't like you wouldn't be able to tell somebody. Right. So it's an interesting thing. And it makes me wonder as like GPS becomes more and more common or self-driving cars Mm -hmm. come in where it has to be GPS, basically. Like there's not a human who can be like, oh, yeah, I feel like it's a right here. Like it doesn't work the same way. How will that shift cities? Like that'll be pretty interesting. Yeah. New cities will probably be be built
1: to accommodate self-driving tech. Well, I guess like certain cities are built to accommodate cars. Think about, it, like, LA. I mean, most cities in the U.S. Yeah. Are, have at least been adjusted to accommodate cars. I wonder
0: how much New York has been had to change over the years. Because New York's a pretty old city.
1: Yeah, that's a good question.
0: I think New York came right. up in the 1600s, right?
1: At least started. Yeah. But, I mean, all of the roads fit cars. There's no real, like, small, narrow yeah. ways anywhere.
0: Maybe, like, Soho. Maybe. It's, like, the only
1: area, maybe. But... For the most part, it's all yeah. car size. It clearly has They would have had to tear stuff down and move it apart. to. So, I wonder how the densely, buildings. like... Together the buildings were but I guess they weren't skyscrapers. No, there were no skyscrapers and it was all it wasn't like new buildings. I mean, I've heard this that with skyscrapers kind of from Empire State Building on we don't have like a great way to take them down Mm. or like to deal with them when they age it can be done. But that wasn't really like part of the plan. Interesting. Whereas older buildings, you know, pre that short stuff, like super easy to tear down and build new ones and all of that. So I never thought about that. It's like back in the day, it would have been easy to move stuff around, reorganize it. Now. I mean, you can't like reorganize one world trade. right? That's what I was thinking now. So what I was thinking is if there's like a new technology that comes up like a car, like as transformative Mm -hmm. as a car. Well, if we got, you know, like a lot more tunnel and you know, we're able to make the whole city walkable.
0: The city's pretty walkable. New York is pretty
1: walkable. Yeah, but I mean pure walkable. Yeah. Right. So cool. if all the roads could be turned into sidewalks and then you just had like street merchants and stuff in between the buildings, that would be awesome. That would be pretty cool. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, that'd be so nice. I would love that. I
0: wonder if there's a city that you could
1: So in Munich, there's a lot of areas that are like that where it feels like it should be like a big street, but it's just all patio like in between the two sides and the two sides of the street quote unquote are as far apart as they are in manhattan but then in between them it's all walk area so it's like a block basically it's It's like like a a square square. like a square exactly but like goes on for a while kind of like the one in downtown miami Oh, nice! but they've got a bunch of them around the city and then they've got like pop-up bars and cafes and stuff just like kind of out in the square it's really fun that sounds awesome and you can drink in public right so just like buy a beer and you're like walking around and going to cafes i'm so jealous of these countries that didn't have prohibition i know Oh, right you're <laughs> doing it right so that would be cool if we could get that here it's there's really a
0: book, something that should exist this, in austin yeah oh definitely yeah. there's a, a total tangent here but like there's a book that we should definitely do which I've, I've had on my to read list for a while it's a long one so we'll need to have like maybe like a couple months before all we read. plan it it's called Albion seed or albion seed okay have you heard of it No, i saw it on uh slate star codex it's a good source yeah, yeah. so he had he had reviewed it and it's basically about how there's like four main groups that founded America and how their influence is still felt. So like one of them is like the Puritans. Right. So a lot of the drinking laws come from the Puritans. The Puritans yeah. Because so they had a, a outsized influence here versus in Europe. So a lot of their beliefs are sort of like codified in American law, which is like why we have, you know, a lot of social conservatism, I would say, in America versus yeah. in Europe. So that's like one group. Then there's like the Quakers and there's like... Catholics Catholics. and then there was a fourth one that I'm forgetting there was a fourth I don't know it was like I might not have even been four might have been five I don't know it was something like that about how these like early groups and how it's so both like their how they came here and why they came here, and then how it's influenced America since. Sounds good. And he said it's like one of his favorite books ever. So it seems like interesting. I, I bought it and it's like a pretty thick. It's okay. a thick book. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, it's gonna be a couple month read. We'll put it on the schedule. Yeah. It, well, it just seems interesting because there could be a lot of really cool conversations around like certain things we see every day, like where they came from. I feel like that's one of those things where you read it and then you'll see it everywhere. Right. Exactly. That's why I've been wanting to read it, but I, you know, it's such
1: a long book. You
0: got to really dedicate yourself you have to, to give it some time, especially
1: because. We're we're reading that other really long book right now. We have a lot of long books on <laughs> right now. I didn't think about that properly when we committed to Sapiens and Homo Deus yeah. back to back. I was like, and now that we're reading them, I'm like, wait a second. We've got two. Homo Deus so far has been a really quick read. Oh, is it shorter? It's not shorter, but it reads really quick. Okay. Like
0: I've probably only spent maybe a couple hours on it, maybe slightly more than that. And I'm like more than 100 pages
1: through. Oh, OK. It, it just moves quick. Because Sapiens moves pretty slow. Right. In the middle. Yeah. The beginning starts off really exciting and then it slows down. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. <laughs> we'll save it. I'll save it. okay
0: I'm just refilling our wine here.
1: Mm-hmm. This wine brought to you by uh, none of our sponsors. (laughs) But if you are a
0: winery and want to sponsor our podcast, just send us some wine and we will give you a shout out. We will. That's an
1: easy sponsorship. sponsorship. We're nice to our sponsors. Yeah, we're great to our sponsors. So he goes on with the school thing. And so one thing he points out with the discipline with those kinds of ranks and hierarchies is that it gets this double benefit where it not just punishes and puts people in line, but it also provides a source of reward. Discipline can also be the reward. He says, it is the penal functioning of setting in order and the ordinal character of judging. Discipline rewards simply by the play of awards, thus making it possible to attain higher ranks and places. It punishes by reversing this process. Rank in itself serves as a reward or punishment. So despite all of these ranks and hierarchies being, you know, artificial constructs of the discipline structure, we still allow them to give us a sense of fulfillment and reward. Right. It's like, oh, you moved up a level. Exactly. You moved up a level. You get extra recess time or something and we see that as a reward when really it's just a removal of punishment a no removal of discipline. How much of that is like just a natural human
0: or maybe animalistic feeling of knowing where you are in the hierarchy? So when someone, I
1: guess, defines the hierarchy for you and you move up a level... You almost can't help but feel good. Yeah. Right? I think it's a natural thing, right? Because we're such social creatures and we're always looking to find out where we are in the dominance hierarchy that we're in, that any sense of progression within it feels good and rewarding. I always wondered that when I was in like, so when I was in big company, right? Mm -hmm. It's like
0: seeing how much importance titles got. Yeah. And then when you're on the outside of that system, so when you're not playing that game and you're looking on the outside, it's like... Almost funny (laughs) to see, like, wow, like people would be like, oh, that person's an SVP. Like, Mm -hmm. better be careful, right? Like, (laughs) don't email them directly, email their assistant. And it's like, come on, just email them.
1: (laughs) I've had that realization with hiring for Growth Machine because everyone I've hired has been like, oh, what's my title going to be? You know, could I, you know, maybe have this title instead? It's just like made up. To me, I'm like, these are completely made up, right? But I guess there is like an optics thing where it makes sense. And like, it doesn't make sense to me because I've never worked at, a big company yeah but i can see how especially like if you have a linkedin right then you don't want to have a vp role and then have like a what's below vp like senior executive role like come after it right i don't know how this stuff works (laughs) account executive account executive yeah (laughs) something like project manager whatever right you don't want that to like come more recently on your linkedin because it looks like you got demoted from your last job right so I basically tell people they can make up whatever title they want. Yeah. Maybe that will bite me in the future, but it seems. I think as you grow, you're gonna. Wanna, as you grow, like, you eventually a have a to. No, because
0: know. well, the other thing, and hopefully your employees aren't listening to this because it's a very like cynical way of looking at it. But like someone once told me that like titles are a very cheap form of compensating somebody, oh. but they feel really good about it. Yeah. So like, let's say you give somebody a you know call it like a thousand dollar a month raise. like doesn't cost you very much but it also like they're gonna get used to it really quickly but whereas if you give them that raise plus you're like oh now you're not a manager you're a director Mm. right like to you that doesn't cost you anything but like to them they feel really good for a while and it's like something they can add to as you said to their linkedin and like it's something like they're not gonna run around bragging that they just got a thousand dollar raise but now when you go from manager to director it's like yeah it's got promoted from manager to director that's a good point. Let's them tell their mom or whatever. Right. You know,
1: they'll feel good. Well, also with the cultural faux pas about talking about money. Right. So your You're not going to talk about your salary point, boost, yeah. but you might talk about, oh, you know, I got this promotion. Yeah. From manager to director, like whatever. Yeah. So, so that was, I mean, that's kind of like what I was telling you about that project at that company that shall not be named publicly, <laughs> where they were rewarding people on the team with <laughs> promotions within the team that get yeah. no benefit besides a better title and more liability. See, right? in that case, I would say all the team members agreed that they the game was exactly dumb. the team yeah. figured it out. They knew yeah. <laughs> like, this is complete bullshit. <laughs> but it's funny how well that can actually work, right? I mean, especially like kids, you know, you give them gold stars, yep. let them sit that's in the front of the crazy. class. When I was in first grade, you had these little charts that you could fill out for every book you read oh, and you got like a little star on the chart for every book you finished and I was obsessed. I read so many books. Is that what led you to this? Well, it was weird because then I like stopped reading for years, uh, but now Neil gives me a gold star every <laughs> time I read a book and so I've started again. No,
0: the listeners every time they listen and
1: they email and comment. and Exactly. It's not about reading of. the books. It's yeah. about seeing those download numbers. <laughs> no. We haven't even checked in weeks. I know. I, I don't check them. For, you you remind me to check them. Like I always forget. I think I've trained myself out of it from having the blog Yep. right because it's so easy to just be obsessive about like oh god I have to look my numbers uh," but you kind of have to zoom out untrain that yeah exactly checking your numbers never makes them go up yeah you'll find yeah so (laughs) yeah funny how that works funny how that works actually oftentimes I would imagine it would make it go up
0: less quickly because you're so focused on that exactly it makes you focus on the short term instead
1: of on doing the things that'll work in the long term but yeah we digress We've digressed a lot. We have, but I'll I'll, I'll let it. We're making good progress. We're making good progress. The next section that he jumps into a bit later that I thought was really interesting was what happens during a plague. And it's a long, should I just read it? It's not that long. It's a cool story and it's it's interesting to hear about and it leads nicely into what we're going to talk about next. So this is about what happens in an outbreak of the plague in an old city. First, a strict spatial partitioning, the closing of the town and its outlying districts, a prohibition to leave the town on pain of death, the killing of all stray animals, the division of the town into distinct quarters, each governed by an intendant. Each street is placed under the authority of a syndic who keeps it under surveillance. If he leaves the street, he will be condemned to death. On the appointed day, everyone is ordered to stay indoors. It is forbidden to leave on pain of death. The syndic himself comes to lock the door of each house from the outside. He takes the key with him and hands it over to the intendant of the quarter. The intendant keeps it until the end of the quarantine. Each family will have made its own provisions, but for bread and wine, small wooden canals are set up between the streets and the interior of the houses, thus allowing each person to receive his ration without communicating with the suppliers and other residents. Meat, fish, and herbs will be hoisted up into the houses with pulleys and baskets." If it is absolutely necessary to leave the house, it will be done in turn, avoiding any meeting. Only the intendants, cynics, and guards will move about the streets and also between the infected houses, from one corpse to another, the crows who can be left to die. These are people of little substance who carry the sick, bury the dead, clean, and do many vile and abject offices. It is a segmented, immobile, frozen space. Each individual is fixed in his place. And if he moves, he does so at the risk of his life, contagion, or punishment.
0: Yeah, that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, well, and what it brings up is this division that becomes a big theme in the book. And also, I think, of what we see today in the manifestations of postmodernist philosophy, which is reading from the book again. The constant division between the normal and the abnormal to which every individual is subjected brings us back to our own time by applying the binary branding and exile of the leper to quite different objects. The existence of a whole set of techniques and institutions for measuring, supervising, and correcting the abnormal brings into play the disciplinary mechanisms to which the fear of the plague gave rise." All the mechanisms of power which, even today, are disposed around the abnormal individual to brand him and to alter him are composed of those two forms from which they distantly derive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would actually say that you see some of this actually even among the postmodernists themselves, right? Where, like, it's almost like the reverse effect when they view, like, the oppressor, I guess, as the entity that has
1: the plague, Almost, right? Like they want to correct. Yes. Fix
0: that person. Right. (laughs) Check their privilege or like.
1: Yeah, I think this is where we see at least Foucault's ideas in this book manifested the most in modern times. I agree, yeah. Which is, you know, he's calling out that humans have always had this distinction between the good and bad, normal, abnormal, yeah. healthy, unhealthy. It's like the tribal view, like us and other. Exactly. That was pretty much Hitler's whole motivation. It's like motivation for most genocide, probably yeah. like war. Uh, we talked about the Black Mirror episode Even the idea before. of citizens versus like non-citizens. Yeah. Or something, right? It's like having
0: those divisions between countries
1: even exactly it's like, it's like us versus them we can go from city to city without getting any immigration permits but you can't go from country to country like why right you know what exactly is so it's just different? arbitrary geographical arbitrary yeah breakdowns on borders that have only existed yeah. for a couple hundred years right so it's a human construct exactly basically yeah and Foucault is actually not saying that all of these distinctions need to go away right he is just saying they exist right which is where so there's a Podcaster, and I won't say I recommend him, but he's interesting. And his podcast is called Unregistered with Thaddeus Russell. Okay. Oh, you've told me about it. Yeah, I mentioned yeah. it before. He's an interesting guy to listen to. I don't agree with everything he says, but he is very defensive of the postmodernists because what he says is that Foucault and Derrida don't say what people today say they say. Which from this seems Which from like from this I kind of agree with. Yeah. Because all Foucault is really saying is that hey, humans make these distinctions. It's true. And these distinctions allow us to impose discipline on society. And this is all true, right? There's nothing wrong about that. Yeah. No, and we all do this. And this is why I, why I hesitate to say that like the far left social justice warrior camp, I wouldn't call them postmodernists. I would say they're like mm. postmodernist influenced, right? Yeah. Because I can see how you take this idea and then you say, oh, all divisions are the result of these artificial power constructs and who are you to decide what is normal and abnormal. Therefore your power is meaningless and we need to throw it all off and like degrade or, you know, dissolve any sense of normal and abnormal. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is not what Foucault is saying, but you can see how somebody gets there from this. It's kinda of like, you know, Nietzsche was not was a Nazi. I was right. just gonna go there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's like exactly the example I was thinking of. Yeah. Going. Yeah. But you
1: read Nietzsche the right way and you can see how it leads to yeah. Nazism, right? Yeah, but it's not that so but to call Nazis. Nietzscheans, like, yeah, yeah would be that wrong. Really, yeah. yeah, it wouldn't make sense. Right. So and, and that's why I think it's interesting to look at the philosophy as opposed but that's to that's why you I mean, this is zooming way out, but mm-hmm. you this is why you read the direct sources. Yeah, exactly. This is why,
0: like, you don't read the the like muddled version or what you hear from ideologists. Right. Like, you just go to the straight source, and it's usually not what you are led to believe that yeah. it is. Well,
1: yeah. and I think it, it is a fair thing to say that most of our divisions of normal and abnormal are just like artificial societal constructs, right? And there's a lot of things that we think are normal now that we would have thought were abnormal 100 years ago. And there's a lot of things that we probably think are abnormal now that we won't think are that not normal right in a
0: hundred years yeah and that's you know that, that's like a hard thing to argue with even like less zoomed out than that the idea of like working from home by yourself 30 years ago i feel like would have been insane yeah you could be like how do you even do that right you're not going to an office every day like what that's not even possible right mm-hmm. but now it's like not weird to go to an office but it's like definitely not weird to
1: work remotely yeah. that's like totally normal now well but i mean i think even sticking to the distinctions that I don't know what to call that, right? But like far left will now make from the postmodernist influence. I think that where it breaks down is that it makes perfect sense to say that there's no reason to create a societal striation between men and women. Like there's nothing normal or abnormal about one group or the other. Right. They're both normal. Yeah. Well, you read Aristotle, right? He basically says that like women can't think well enough to vote right really oh i've never read aristotle he literally says that i mean and like you can't call him sexist right because that's just like what people thought at the time but that is like okay you know there's no reason for that distinction of normal and abnormal and that's kind of like part of what foucault is getting at here that doesn't make sense right where i think it goes too far is that when it says that all distinctions even biological even yeah even you know any distinction between individuals that also has to go and it's like well there's a difference between what is different in you know biological physical reality and what is different as a construct of society right it's like you are taller than me
0: yeah, but that's not, not like, like a bias. Yeah, right? <laughs> Like we're not saying that like, oh, you're normal and that's abnormal right. Right? or the other way around or the other way around. Yeah. Exactly.
1: That's just like how the world is. And so I think that's where there's probably some break between what it sounds like Foucault is saying and what we're seeing it played out as in the modern arguments. Yeah, it's almost taken too far. Yeah, it's, it's, taken, too far. Too far. Yeah, it's <laughs> taken a little too far. Right. Where it's <laughs> saying like, oh, any distinction is artificial. It's like, well, no. Right. There are real distinctions. I don't think it's he, he like, would like, argue that. No, I don't uh, think he would. At least from this book, it doesn't seem like he would say it. It's wrong to say that one of them is normal or abnormal. And I think to a certain extent that is true, right? It's like, yeah, you wouldn't. So for me and you, right? Like one is taller, one's shorter, but it would be either
0: no matter which way you look at it, it could be called abnormal. You'd yeah. be like, oh, Nat, you're short or Neil, oh,
1: you're too tall. You know, it's like, but like neither of those things is true. It just is. It's just sort of a subjective, subjective. judgment. Yeah. The difference can't be argued, but the interpretation and any judgment based right. on those differences. Yeah. That is all subjective. Right. And I think that's what he's calling attention to here. Yeah, which is seems to have gotten lost. Yeah. But... And it's it's a subtle thing. And now, like having read this, I think I get much more how, you know, Russell can argue that, you know, the postmodernists are actually not saying anything crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. how it's being played out now that is kind of crazy. And that makes sense, right? From what I've seen of this one book. I don't yeah, really disagree course. with anything. We'd have to read a lot more yeah. stuff. But You know, Foucault isn't taking it quite that far. There was nothing in here that I found objectionable besides the writing.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) The concepts made a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Well, and this is a great point, right? Is that we have always broken people out by normal and abnormal, and that is all subjective. And we can, you know, we can probably seriously question ourselves right now where we're doing that. I'm sure we are in all sorts of places. Yeah. 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 I mean, the only, I guess, like pushback I have on it is when we know there is a like distinct reason for the abnormality mm. right and I think part of the problem is that the word "normal" is very loaded. Yeah, of course. Right. Because normal well, like normal sounds size, like good right. and healthy, right? And abnormal sounds right. I, I guess like the better way to say it would be you know like the supermajority and the outliers, right? And so there's nothing wrong with saying that like the supermajority of people are not autistic. Yeah, like that's just true. Right. But if you say normal people aren't autistic, that is a very like different thing. You
0: could also say yeah. like normal people are between quote normal people are within the heights of like five seven and Six three or something yeah. and that someone who's seven feet tall is abnormal abnormal right but it's not like bad no it's just abnormal you're not making a value judgment you're making a distribution a judgment. distribution judgment and yeah. i
1: think that the term gets like the problem with that is that if you say oh a seven foot person is abnormal i feel like you get away with it because it's like yeah well at least he's seven feet mm-hmm. if you say a five foot person is abnormal it's like uh, yeah right so an insult it's almost an insult yeah. and so it can be at least taken as an insult which is why i think there's you know Because there is like a strain of art or a thread of argument that you can't say that being non transgender is normal, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it's like gender normative yeah or something and it's sort of like part of the problem there i think is the word normal itself because it's certainly like an extreme supermajority is not transgender right and like a very small outlier is but the words normal and not normal i think create part of that conflict yeah i think you're totally right about that because it's a loaded word yeah because you can have two people arguing where one person can say like You know being straight is normal and the other person saying like no being straight is or you know being gay isn't abnormal Right, and they're both right, right. They're just
0: speaking different terminologies. Yeah, they're speaking different
1: terminologies They're using different versions of the word normal, right? So I feel like that word is a bigger Problem yeah. than the actual like statistics and stuff underlying, right. it, or the, even the ideas underlying it. Yeah. Because you can see how it does make sense to argue against these artificial constructs of normality and abnormality, yeah. right? Like, you don't want people to feel like they're weird. Well,
0: it's like one group is arguing distribution, and one group is arguing what should be and should not
1: be. And to be fair, we're being very generous here. I yeah. think there are people, you know, who are doing the opposite on both yes, sides I, where I agree with that. There yeah. are some people who are arguing, no, like we're being straight that. is we're normal. Arguing, we're arguing the best Sorry. case argument. for both sides the defensible arguments of both sides yeah i think like one side is
0: saying the defensible argument on one side is saying that a super majority of people are straight versus gay and that argument seems to be true from a distribution standpoint. Now, what's saying what's right versus what's wrong? That's not what they're saying. I don't, at least I don't think that's yeah. what they're saying. That's
1: the defensible argument. Yeah. And right. so the
0: other side is saying that, like, no, it's not abnormal, meaning it's not wrong yeah. to not be straight or not to be, you know, gender normal. But gender normal, there you go. The word normal General, again. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it's weird how that slips into like the words that we use. Yeah, but I
0: think it's a weird word. We like the word normal, no. when you really dive into it, it's like there's almost two
1: ways to take that word. And that might cause this miscommunication almost. Well, and the of course, use of right words is like line. so yeah. interesting too. And also how words shape your thought. Exactly. Well that's what I was gonna say. It's yeah. like the I think most of the abortion argument comes down to word choice, right? It's really just when you decide a human life begins. Yeah. But if somebody is pro-choice, then they see anybody who is against abortion as being anti-women's choices, right? Or women's rights. Yeah, know, or women's yeah. rights. But if you're pro-life, you see anybody who's in favor of abortion as being anti-life, right? right. Like pro-murder. Yeah. And so, to both of them, it's easy to be really like militantly angry against the other side because yeah. of the words you're using to shape your ideas around that belief right and so that's a hard thing to get out of so and you're almost talking past each other at that
0: point yeah because you're not speaking the same language when you use a word you're not using like the other side isn't thinking that you mean the same thing right
1: so, yeah words make a huge impact be, in these arguments it'd be right. easy to have a long fight with somebody where you're saying no you know being straight is normal and they're saying no it's not normal right and then that person's saying like well no obviously it's normal like look around you and they're like no like it doesn't mean it's normal right but like, well, what do you mean it doesn't mean it's yeah. normal right and they're both right in you know their own interpretations of the word, so which takes us back to a postmodernist. Well, idea. yeah, which is a very postmodernist <laughs> idea. It, it, not just your interpretation of the world and everything; it's like your interpretation of language. Yep. But that also, I mean, so that brings in another difficult there's argument. Strange loops here. Yeah, these are <laughs> strange loops. Uh, <laughs> Shout out, Go to Lesher-Bach. Shout out, Go to Lacherbach. And I think this is one of the hard things about postmodernism too: is that it treats language as very kind of like its um, meaning is interpreted by the receiver. Whereas we kind of have to treat language as its meaning is created by the speaker. Yeah. Because in sort of postmodernist language, it's your interpretation of a word that matters and that is, quote unquote, the truth for you, right? Postmodernism in general is kind of against the idea of a universal truth. So it's what you think the truth is that is the truth for you, right? That doesn't work with language, though, for the reasons we've kind of just given Because you can interpret normal very different from how I interpret normal. Yeah. And if you get offended because you have a different interpretation of normal than I have of normal, that's not necessarily my fault. Right? Yeah, you just
0: have a different... I just
1: have a different interpretation. Yeah. But if you think that truth is what is subjectively true to you or subjectively offensive to you, then you can make anything offensive or bad. And that's what we're seeing in the UK right now, right? Where people are literally getting arrested for making offensive jokes. And the person making the joke, I saw that. Yeah. They don't think it's offensive. <laughs> or like they think it's edgy and funny. Yeah. But you know, if you have one bad person in the audience and they get offended by it, then they say it is an offensive joke. Right. But what makes it an offensive joke? Is it the so fact it's, that it's like, you were offended? It, or? So it's
0: it's like is the burden
1: on the speaker or the receiver? Exactly.
0: And and I yeah. I
1: mean, I personally think that it's on the speaker. Me too. Right. Yeah. And if a listener gets offended by something that's kind of on them and their interpretation of the world, right? Word, right? Because you can't have a world without offense, right? I'm sure we've offended people on this podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you can't, you don't have a right to not be offended. Is the Stephen Fry quote? Is it Stephen Fry or is it Hitch? I think it's Hitch. Is it, you don't have a right to... Yeah, he's like, you don't have a right to not be offended. Mm. Because you can't have free speech and freedom of right. offense. Right. They're diametrically opposed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember,
0: I don't know where this was, but I definitely heard at one point in time, like Ron Paul said we don't have the freedom of speech to talk about the weather. It's yeah. like not why it exists, right? It exists for offensive speech. Like it exists to protect speech that somebody might find not
1: appropriate. Especially the government yeah, or exactly. a ruling elite.
0: If you're just talking about the weather, like you don't need a law <laughs> or an amendment protecting free speech, right? Yeah. If it's if you're just talking about totally acceptable to every oh it's gonna be sunny tomorrow like you don't need free speech for that yeah you can say that in china (laughs) it doesn't (laughs) matter right but like in america you can talk about like not liking trump and it's fine but in, you know, some other places in the world, you can't, or, you know, like you're saying the UK even, which we all tend to think about as a free society might not be, you know, as free as well. Yeah. I didn't realize until what been happening in the last few months. Though. When I heard Germany too, is a very interesting place because they have so many like anti-Nazi laws. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's another weird place where like the right intentions were there, right? They like, obviously, and I'm sure like when there were actual Nazis still alive, like a lot of them, it would have been advantageous to prevent people from using Nazi propaganda but now it's kind of like there's not too i mean not, most of them are not alive anymore but they still have a lot of those laws on the books so like certain types of speech you can go to jail for so it's like truly not free speech but we tend to at least i think of germany as a free society as well yeah but like it's well, a very different interpretation than america uh yeah i think we probably have the most extreme free speech laws at least among western countries that i know of
1: yeah up there at least yeah and i didn't realize that until some of this stuff started happening and it's kind of crazy to think about that like going to especially i mean partially with what we do yeah right where it's like it feels like v for vendetta where (laughs) you know Stephen, and that's Stephen fry right he goes on the tv show and he's just like shitting on the prime minister or whoever and then he gets like black bagged in his home right right? yeah and you know we're obviously not at that point but that's a scary thing to imagine being possible
0: yeah which is
1: why i think I think we were talking about this maybe at one
0: of the brunches or something we were at. It was like, it's weird that you have to defend the idea of free speech in America. Right now, like there are plenty of people who don't like the idea. Well, college campuses. Have you seen those charts of
1: declining support for free speech on campuses? Or where it's like they'll
0: say we like free speech unless you say something offensive, which is like, yeah. Well, then it's not free speech. You've definitely seen that, right? I've definitely seen tweets about that from colleges saying that, yeah, we support you know free speech except in cases where it's offensive.
1: Yeah. Well, those those tweets that are like, I support free speech, but if you're gonna say that (laughs) you know X Y Z, then you're a Nazi, right? It's like, what? Which I actually like
0: what a lot of soldiers usually say about like, or even like, okay, this is a great example with the whole Colin Kaepernick thing about kneeling during the, the national anthem. Like a lot of soldiers would say like, or like people were tweeting and a lot of soldiers were even saying like, if you, uh, I may not agree with what you're doing, but I'll defend your right to do it. That's the right mentality. Cause it's like, you don't have to agree with what the person's saying, but it's in their right to say it, even if it offends you, right? Like it's not your right to not be offended, <laughs> as you said. Yeah. And that that's gets lost. I think people are thinking that that's a right. Like, it's your, not your right to not get offended.
1: Well, and honestly, I think a big part of it is, and I hate to, like, harp on this demographic all the time, but, and it's, it's different <laughs> from my normal, no, it's different from my normal white, it's normal from my different demographic I'm shitting on. Now it's I'm not the sh- Middlebury? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> this is, I'm shitting on the upper middle class white kids who feel like they need to defend every other race oh, and, yes. yeah. like, minority, right? This is related demographic. It's a related demographic, but that's, whenever you see these, like, walkout protest things, it seems like it's a huge group of you know white kids in college who are saying like we need to protect black people from being offended right and it's like i mean maybe that's a good thing but it seems weird that they feel like they need to patronize every other minority and well my theory on that is uh virtue signaling yeah there's a (laughs) lot of virtue (laughs) signaling there and that's where it gets like really crazy is okay you know like, what? like, I don't want to be directly offensive to people, right? No. If, we, if we say something in a conversation that offends somebody listening, you know, tangential to us, I don't care about that because that's going to happen. But yeah. if I offend somebody to their face, like, I want them to tell me. But if I say something and somebody else standing next to me steps in and is like, whoa, that's really offensive you know, to that person, That's third party. So yeah. The third yeah. Party. It's like, okay, that person can tell me if it's offensive, right? Like they don't need somebody to take care of them, right? They don't need you to like watch guard or right. watchdog them. <laughs> yeah. But, and I think particularly white people have this tendency, uh, especially like young, like college kids where they feel like they need to protect every other minority quote unquote protect yep. because they themselves are afraid of being called racist. Know, bigot, say- whatever. If they don't, I almost find or- it, This is going to sound hypocritical, but I almost find it offensive when I see that now. (laughs) I actually find it offensive too. And and I think that the people being defended should find it offensive because obviously I can't imagine how this feels, but if you're like a black student and you've got all these white kids who are standing up and saying that like, oh, you're gonna be offended and we need to protect you. It's like really patronizing. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. It's a really
0: weird, it's almost like a You don't
1: think I can take care of myself. That's exactly what I was gonna say. It's almost
0: like a master and like servant type of thing. It's like I'm here for your protection or something. And it's like kind of offensive
1: to be treated that way. Super offensive. So it's weird that that's become so normal. Yeah. And I mean, it really all does come back to what we're talking about here, which is this difference between intentional and extensional language, right? Is it what the person is saying means or is it how you interpret it? Right. And a world based on uh, like the the correctness is however you interpret it. That's a crazy world to live in. Yeah. Just completely undesirable.
0: Well, it almost means it's like almost an impossible world to operate in,
1: right? Because like, how
0: can I guarantee that your values and my values are the
1: same? Yeah, like for our- all I know, you have some weird religion that forbids yeah. the use of personal pronouns. Right. And so for every time I say I, you're being horribly offended. Right and Now I can get thrown in a UK jail. Right. right, so see, like
0: that's where it gets really tricky, right? It's like, you can be offended. Like, that's totally fine. Yeah. Right, like I don't have a problem with people being offended. I think it's like, there are things that are offensive that people say. And I think that's a distinction, like, So any minority growing up in the U.S. has definitely dealt with like ignorant people before, whether they were white or not white. They could be another another race as well. But like, I'm sure even if somebody was like a Russian immigrant, right, I'm sure they dealt with like ignorant comments from Americans. Right. But like, and I'm not saying that's right, but you shouldn't go to jail for making an ignorant comment because it's like you might not have known any better. Right? Like I, I remember growing up, this is a very like this is a very Indian specific example. But anybody's Indian listening to this would know. People always asked, "What is the dot that Indian women wear on their forehead?" Right, <laughs> and that's like the person might not be trying to be offensive. They might actually just be curious. Yeah, I realized that later. I always used to be annoyed with that question, but that's not that. That's not a bad. Like that should definitely not get thrown to jail for asking that question. That's number one. That's yeah. a given. But number two, it's like they might not have been intending to be ignorant they might just not know that's like a totally valid thing to ask yeah it's like what does that mean why is that wrong i actually wish that was
1: like more okay yeah right because i feel that's a good question it's a great question (laughs) yeah well and it opens up this chance to like talk about your culture and just like all of this stuff right and i think there is also that thread of discussing anything related to racial differences immediately gets construed as some form of like racism or insensitivity right where It's like I even I feel a little I've trained a lot of it out of myself But even the fact that we are talking about race right now, I still feel a little weird about it, right? Even though we're not saying anything offensive There is that element of any discussion of race is inherently offensive to some people right to even Call any attention to the fact that there are differences between people is offensive. What's weird? Okay This is we're obviously now deep into this like modern postmodernism I I think it relates to it It does.
0: Yeah, 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 but but where I was going with this is like so the same people who don't want to talk about race or think that talking about differences in races are, you know, is offensive. That's like, you know, one group. But that same group seems to believe in cultural appropriation being a big problem. Mm, but like yeah. that means that there are differences between cultures. Exactly. If you're going to believe in cultural appropriation. So like, I don't get how you can simultaneously hold both beliefs coherently, but it could just be they haven't thought that deeply into the underlying philosophy because like those seem to be diametrically opposed.
1: No, I I think they are. And I think those contradictions are common. The other one that I've heard get tossed around a lot, and I'm going to mess it up, but it's basically that like, you have to not assume anyone's gender because their gender is fluid, but also people who change their gender are that gender now. Right. It's a complete contradiction. It doesn't really make sense. Right. But but wait, but logic is a patriarchal. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's where it gets so. really crazy, is that yeah. there is that camp too, which argues that any use of like logic and rationality for a point is like a symptom of the patriarchy. And that's one that I just don't see in here. I, I have no idea where that comes from. from. No. I mean, maybe it comes from... Maybe there's something in Derrida about that. Maybe. But nothing in Foucault would Definitely. suggest that he is against he reason. He seems
0: fairly rational, actually. Yeah, he seems awesome. like he lays out the point in a logical, progressive,
1: rational way. Yeah, I would love to have like a glass of wine with this guy. Yeah. He seems like super interesting, thoughtful, potentially over-verbose <laughs> <laughs> guy. He's here in spirit. Yeah, <laughs> he no, I mean, doesn't seem unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like from reading this book... He would almost be more in the Jordan Peterson e. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, (laughs) and like maybe we're projecting, but I can imagine him seeing this or like you know having these thoughts and then showing up today and being like, "Whoa, guys, you took this way too far, right?" Yep. Probably like how Nietzsche showed up in the Nazi times. Yeah, I'd be like, "Come on, guys, this is not what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) You need to calm down."
0: Yeah, but I guess that's probably uh, maybe a lot of philosophers have that issue where like their ideas get taken much further past the conclusion that was drawn.
1: Well, I feel like even Marx, you know, towards the end of his life, he kind of recanted some of the earlier like Das Kapital Mm. pure socialism work. Right. And I bet if he showed up in the Soviet Union and they were like taking away, you know, the best farmers and shipping them to the gulags. (laughs) Right. Everyone was starving. He'd be like, all right, guys, like this is clearly not not what I wanted here. I mean, come on. And I think there must be a confirmation bias compounding whatever element to some of this stuff where you get into it and then you get pulled to the extremes just by like, this sort of like virtue signaling element where if you're not okay with the more extreme person, then you seem like the bigot in the group. So right? what I was going to actually
0: ask the audience right now is if there's something we're missing about these arguments, I'd be very curious to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Because I wonder, I really wonder if people who actually think about these arguments are, or who, you know, per- supposedly believe in these arguments, right? I wonder if it's that symptom that you just described, yeah. that they're scared to seem like the bigot in the group. So what I'm worried about, is, not worried, but what I'm yeah. curious about is if like a lot of people are almost just virtue signaling to each other, but none of them actually believe what they're virtue signaling for. Like they all think everybody else is going to think Uh-oh. that I'm the the bad one if I call this out. Yeah. So I'm wondering how much of it is like that type of group thing, but I could be totally wrong. Anyway, I'm just really curious if there's something we're like missing about this argument, I would
1: really like to hear it. I do think there is that element of it though, where it's kind of like a cult where you kind of hang out in the cult and you go along with it because you've got some friends or whatever. And then, you know, after a little bit of time, the cognitive dissonance kicks in Mm. and then you kind of feel like you have to believe it. But there's really only one or two people who originally believed it outright. And then everyone else just- It becomes a group dynamic. Yeah, it becomes a group dynamic. You know, you take in some like outcasts in the beginning and they form your initial circle Mm. because they need some social acceptance. They'll go along with it. And they become, you know, like true believers from cognitive dissonance. Then it slowly grows the group. And- you know, this is—I'll just say it. I mean, a lot of the most postmodernisty like kids you see on college campuses—they're outcasts, and you can sort of tell. It's like it's not the popular kids who are, you know, getting really they're riled up the about all this they're stuff. They're part of the hierarchy. Yeah, the hierarchy. exactly. Right. It's like you get attracted to this philosophy if you're kind of a loser, right?
0: For lack of so a better way. So why term. is it so common on college campuses, you think? Because that's an interesting thing I was wondering, but i never really got yeah, a good answer. That's a good question. Personally, I think it's like once you've been part of the real world, for lack of a better way of putting it, mm-hmm. you start to see that like why some of these things exist. Like there's an yeah. unequal distribution of ability. That's like... For sure. True. Right. And you see that like the minute you start working. Right? Yeah. There's like some people who are great at it. Some people who are okay at it. Some people who are not so great at it. And it's like not anybody from the top imposing that, you know, it's just that's just sort of what is. Right. But I wonder if on college campuses it's like you're not living in the real world. It's like kind of its own constructed reality.
1: And it has a very strong kind of like social dominance hierarchy, Mm. right? And so you've got this division where you've got, you know, sports teams, attractive people, you know, partiers at the top of the hierarchy, and then 80% of the students kind of at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And especially... I don't know if this is related, right? But I imagine that over the last five, 10 years of social media, like sexual success has diverged significantly, Mm. right? So particularly in men, I think, and we've seen data on this too, significantly fewer men are just having sex with significantly more women Mm. and significantly more men aren't having any sex at all. So it's more like power law distribution. Yeah, exactly. We're getting more of a power law distribution. And then you just, so you naturally end up with more, at least, you know, male losers on campus. And then you've got teachers who are teaching postmodernist ideas saying that, like, all, you know, dominance, hierarchies and whatever are artificial and whatever, right? And then you, like, join a group because you, like, want a social outlet and it's, like, a, you know, for change group and you get publicity or whatever, right? And you feel like you're doing something, Contributing to something. You're part of a a tribe, a group, and the cool kids won't take you, so you, like. Join these other groups and like this is maybe like a way to Judge mental interpretation of it. It's just like from what I saw at carnegie of the kids who like really bought into this stuff It was mostly the outcasts. Was it big when you were there because when was I was
0: starting. there, it wasn't very big at all I actually I don't know a single person who was part of anything
1: like that It was just starting my sister who's in college now says she sees just tons well, I heard of her it. now It's in it's crazy Well, and the crazy thing she was saying is that the problem with it is that it's gotten so extreme that especially for like white kids, you don't want to hang out with anyone who's not also a rich white kid. Because Wait, why? Well, because there's just like so much animosity towards, you so know, it's created or... the stratification. It's made it the... worse. Huh? Right. It's made the whole problem worse because if you're around somebody who is not the exact same, like race and background as you, you don't know what you can say. You're you can constantly say. afraid. Yeah. That you might say something offensive and then get like called out and yelled <laughs> at, which is, you know, obviously, the exact opposite of what I feel like
0: important. we feel like we grew up in
1: a almost. A, yeah, I know it's not that it's long. It's weird. It's totally. Different we're not that. World. We're not that old. No, but it's like we graduated a few years ago. Yeah, like,
0: but, but in that time, it's really taken over. I mean, when I was in, I mean, maybe this is gonna offend some people. Whatever, but when I was in high school, I feel like my friend. So my friend group was all sorts of people. We had some white people. We had some Hispanic people. We had some Indian people. Some Middle Eastern people. Some Asians. It all sorts of people. And we definitely made racial jokes oh, with yeah. each other all the time. I was time. just thinking about that too. Like,
1: like in college, yeah, we had friends, like very big racial group, and we would all shit on each other exactly. For, like Exactly, that was jokes. like part of... It was part of bonding. Part of bonding, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now you like can't do that. Although the flip side of that is that there was some, and obviously it's like a social psych study, it's probably bullshit, but <laughs>
0: okay, people who cap, yeah. make
1: more racial jokes with their friends are supposedly less racist. I believe that, I totally believe it's that. It's the people who are most afraid of any of that humor. Well, no,
0: anymore. no, because number one, this is like what Taleb said It's getting in the Game. Right, it's like the people who are most likely to talk about this sort of like, oh, all white people are racist, kind of thing, who are white are the ones who have no minority friends, yeah, right. Point they'll never take a drink with
1: their cab driver, yeah. Well, and honestly, it kind of reminds me too of like the you know, hyper conservative Republican Congress people arguing you know, hardest against gay rights that are like buying mail hookers, yes, right,
0: exactly. Because it's very easy for that person to imagine that everybody else is also racist because perhaps they're racist themselves. (laughs) They might be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same thing. It's like the people who are arguing hardest against gay rights maybe
1: are like they're trying to hide the fact that they are also gay.
0: Or at least they're bisexual. Yeah, well, it
1: it was that plus they were brought up in like a household that was super against it. So they're fighting against it because of their own urges. Right. right. That was a weird thing. I always wondered that, too. It's like, wait, and actually, so this kind of makes sense. If you're a white person and you think that seeing any difference in race is bad and you see differences in races. Oh, you think you're doing something. You think you are doing something wrong and so you have to project that you are not a bad person guilty conscious kind of exactly guilty conscious type of thing all this actions which would explain why you see so many white college kids doing it. it i still don't get how you can simultaneously believe that all racial distinctions are bad but then
0: also think cultural appropriation is a thing because yeah. if that's a thing that means there's no racial just dis- like it does. those yeah. two <laughs> <laughs> ideas don't mesh <laughs> the whole thing just doesn't really make <laughs> much sense i saw this thing last week it was like is bruno mars a cultural appropriator oh yeah and it's like No, no, (laughs) I don't think
1: so. Like, I don't know, man. (laughs) I really do feel though that you know, all that he's saying here is that these differences exist, they have been used to create a disciplinary structure throughout history, and that's actually where he stops. I think that the interpretation we can take from that is that we should recognize them and recognize they are not objective assessments of normality and abnormality, and that it's all subjective human interpretation. But most of what's beyond that and what's in the modern, you know, schools of thought is not here, right. So yeah, it could be I in know. other books, but it's not here. Well, I think that brings up a really good point of, And, you know, I think a good closing thought
0: is just like anytime you see a modern philosophy, it's worth going to the primary source. Yeah. And I think that was a big lesson from this is just like I expected to see a whole lot of
1: of the stuff like we, we see to today throw down the power dynamic right. and like get rid of the patriarchy yep. and or that like the prison is a patriarchal construct. Exactly. To keep the other races and classes, you know, subjected under white male rule. And yep. That's not here. That's not here Yeah, at all. It's a reasonable, it's interesting, like, it's a thought-provoking book, like, he seems like he would not agree with most of what we today call, you know, postmodernist thought, or at least he would have some contentions with it, and... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't recommend you necessarily go out and read it because it is just a slog. A to get book. Through. Yeah. Read a summary. Yeah. Read the Spark Notes, Wikipedia, Listen the podcast. Listen to the podcast. I think we talked about the most important parts of it. Yeah. But I think we should do another episode. Maybe try to get some Derrida, some other postmodernist thought. I think that would be, I, I that'd be interesting because it's kind of fun to dig into. It would it. also be interesting to have somebody
0: who has read more postmodernism mm-hmm. than us. Maybe we get like an NYU professor or something. Yeah, that could be interesting. That'd be fun. Just to like, I'm curious what somebody who's dug really deep into the philosophy would say about some of this. School. Yeah. Because like, I wonder if somebody who's honestly dug really deep if we bring up some of these distinctions they might agree with us they might be like oh yeah this was never in the text but it's been a projection of what someone said or maybe there's text that we just don't know yeah that we're missing maybe he wrote like an essay at some point that was
1: different or you know it'd just be an interesting conversation good to explore some wine yeah some wine yeah <laughs> all right cool Like right. that we need to give very quick shout outs to uh, perfect keto perfect slash think yep. for all your keto related needs kettle on fire for some delicious bone broth, Kettle on beef and fire and chicken, fire.com slash, slash think. think. And for Sigmatic, Forsigmatic.com slash think for delicious mushroom coffee, adaptogen blend coffee. Ooh, yes. Uh, the Rishi elixir for improved sleep, some hot, hot, hot cocos. And they've got their new matcha thing, which I haven't tried yet. I haven't tried that yet either. But I'm going to bug them to send some <laughs> our way so we can test that out too. And give it some shout outs if yep. we like it. If we like it. Uh, and Major I guess podcast.com, slash support. Yep. If you want any of those links, you can click through to Amazon, buy anything there that supports the pod. Leave some reviews. Leave some reviews on iTunes. Send us emails.
0: Tweet Send at us. Definitely join the newsletter. Yeah. Newsletter's great. We're going to be... Well, we are sending it out more frequently yes. recently, and we will continue doing that. <laughs> uh, that way, you'll get access to the books before we do them, so you can read them ahead of time, follow along, and you will also get access to... Future giveaways, exactly. Uh, free money when they uh, happen. Free money, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that could come. And World also, of
1: treasures you, in the newsletter. Also,
0: you never know when the newsletter is going to come, so it's a bit it's like a surprise. It's a bit like a casino.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't even know what. Every, they're coming. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody in the morning just wakes up and checks their email. Did I get a newsletter? No. Okay, maybe yeah, tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, and, keep uh, pining away. We'll be back soon. We will be back soon. More wonderful things too make you think (laughs) okay
0: (laughs) that is the wine talking now (laughs) net all right (laughs) all right on that note uh see you guys next time see you next
1: week